bop 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 Excuse me? Yes. You don't tell me what I do and do not deserve. Yes, I do. You're not my mom. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, we did see our mom this weekend. We had a lovely yes, weekend, it was didn't lovely. we? We we saw our mom and our dad. Yeah, that too. Yes. It's a nice little pre-Thanksgiving family reunion. It was fun. Yeah. But it's over now. <laughs> Hence why <laughs> we may just be a little bit listless. <laughs> oh, we just ate so much food and drank so much wine. Mm. It was just, oh, it was like a bacchanalia. <laughs> yes. Speaking of bacchanals, John. <laughs> Let's just get right into it. Yes, that's the subject of the film that we experienced for the first time this week. And hopefully the last time. That's <laughs> just the premise of this very podcast you're listening to called Aspiring Snobs. Where we watch quote-unquote classic movies in order to improve our film bona fides. Yes, and for this week, we watched a, a, a stalwart in this category. Yes, apparently this is one of the, the, of the rich tapestry of classic films. A fine old-school French film. Yes, called Le Regular de Jou, a.k.a. The Rules of the Game. I just, so feel like, is... I just feel the need to show off my French <laughs> every chance yeah, I get for some reason. No, no, I don't no, know why that if, is. If it wasn't evident enough, this was Greg's idea <laughs> to watch this movie. Well, d- don't throw me under the bus. What do you mean, don't throw you under the bus? <laughs> I've, like, I don't know. If anything... I had never heard of this movie until you brought it to me. Okay. John, have you heard of a magazine called Sight and Sound? No. Okay. <laughs> it's a, well, it's an English magazine. They are literally the authorities on French, or, uh, on world cinema, essentially. I thought that was Empire. <laughs> no. <laughs> no? Oh, no. All right. No. That cover story with Chris Hemsworth does not demonstrate their authority on the subject of, of motion pictures. Damn. <laughs> I know. What a shame it is. <laughs> but uh, they consider themselves basically the authority. And every 10 years, John, 10 years, they put out mm. a poll to uh, luminaries, uh, directors, film professors, you know, luminaries in the world of motion pictures, to basically survey what are the greatest films of all time. Hmm. And from the original poll conducted in 1952 to the last one conducted in 2012, the rules of the game has consistently appeared in the top ten. Okay. Even the one that was recut down to 85 minutes because this film caused a, <laughs> a riot in 1939 France. <laughs> in a world where a riot of laughter yeah. am i right fellas am i right more like a riot of uh loose morals at a time when uh nazis were lock- knocking loudly at the doors <laughs> i mean is that is that why this movie's kind of lauded is it like saying something about pre-war france and it's like in context now it's like making a comment on it i don't like please explain to me why this movie is so beloved well, quote unquote, by sight and sound critics. I want to get, yeah, I wanted to give that little context because I think it maintains that reputation through sheer momentum. <laughs> well, everyone else likes it. Absolutely. And yes, I, I think there is something to be said for kind of exploring a, an aristocratic or bougie lifestyle. <laughs> Maybe it's one of the, term, yeah, I mean, bougie. it's a it's a genre that pretty much persists today, doesn't it? Downton Abbey being the most famous contemporary example yeah and i think that's why you thought maybe i would enjoy it because it does have (laughs) on the surface it looks like downton abbey it's about aristocrats and also there's a subplot about their help their servants yeah well i i I don't pick movies that i think you'll enjoy john that's not my motivation (laughs) that is very true uh here's the key difference Mm -hmm. um downton abbey has actually something to say and a point of view (laughs) okay whereas this movie has nothing to say and no point of view, and really no purpose to exist. I whoa, hang on. Let's yeah. not go that far. Let's. Uh, it's not just what a film is about, John, but how it goes about that. Oh, okay. And I gotta say, there's something very Shakespearean about this. I'm not saying it's as good as Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, but just it's a the, farce. Gra- the 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 construction of the dramatics in it really compelled me. Oh, 
And now, if only the construction of anything else were interesting. <laughs> well, so you're saying that you're comparing it to Downton Abbey right now. Mm-hmm. What do you think that has to say about, uh, let's say, a heritage drama? You know, what is it, 1920s England? Whereas this is 1939 France. Like, what's the difference? Well, the difference is because that's taking place in a period, like the last gasp of that lifestyle. The aristocracy is slowly dying. Well, like, I would argue um, it's it's going stronger than ever today. <laughs> that's also very true. Um, I think Downton Abbey Cannon came out at the time of global recession in like around 2007. So obviously the haves and the have-nots were more fresh on people's minds. Yeah. Um, but again, it was kind of like it, it. It's commenting more on kind of this tumultuous time. Things are changing, and kind of the old world. You know, it's clearly not meant to last. And how does the family deal with that? And how does the lower class feel with that? Because you have a lower class that feels like this is an inspiring time for them, but then you also have people like the character of Mr. Crowley, who also seems like, even though he was always kind of on a lower stage of life, at least he knew his place. And so he's kind of uncomfortable with a more modernization of this of England, basically. Okay, well, that's that's kind of strictly specific to England. <laughs> Yeah, no. There's yeah. there's a concept called the class ceiling, like it's the great divider in English society. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas this one obviously doesn't touch on those themes. I think what it more touches on is uh, which is exactly my point because this movie doesn't touch on anything. Well, hang on. This is a lark. It's not a lark. This is a boring <laughs> lark. It's not boring. How this can you be bored? Such... It's this movie is. I've never seen a movie where so much happens and so little actually matters. It is just. Like it's one of those movies that it just happens in front of your eyes. Well, what do you... it's like watching Assassin's Creed. It's like watching Power Rangers. It just it happens in front of your eyes, and then when it's over, it's like, oh, okay. I, I love I love the way we're making this uh, palatable to modern audiences, <laughs> comparing it to Downton Abbey, Assassin's Creed, and Power Rangers. Well, you've never seen Power Rangers or Assassin's Creed, so I guess that's not really a fair comparison. No, but <laughs> nor has anybody. <laughs> How dare you, good sir? Power Rangers was a modest hit in China. Nice. <laughs> so you say it doesn't have anything to say about anything. Yes. Now I I would disagree there because there's a there's a fungible dynamic going on between the characters. <laughs> okay. About the nature of uh, th- we have to cast our minds to pre-war France, mm. and that in spite of the in spite of these aristocratic trappings, they are very um, loose. <laughs> Characters are very loose morally. Um, Libertine men and scarlet women. Yes, exactly. And so, I if you're one, if you're looking for ideas to grapple, you can kind of you can kind of grasp that, I suppose. But I, I mean, I can't I can't imagine how you were bored throughout the whole. I mean, I mean, listen, the plot couldn't be more straightforward. <laughs> maybe Go that's ahead, where, please. Yeah, maybe that's where it's this is losing it. Let me explain the plot. The film centers on Andre, who is a national hero. He's just set the record for the uh, fastest transatlantic flight from the United States to France. Take uh, that, Charles Lindbergh. Yes, and he does it to win the heart of Christine. Christine is a Austrian expatriate who doesn't quite fit into this high, high-class French society. However, she's getting there. She's married to uh, Robert, who's a lord. And uh, although Andre pines for Christine, she does not return those affections, and he, and he, and he begins to sulk. Thankfully, he's lifted by his friend, Monsieur Octave, who's played by the film's director, Jean Renoir. Mm. Now, what, uh, to cheer him up, Monsieur Gustave goes to the Lord Robert and asks for his invitation to a culinaire, a little celebration in his estate for the weekend, I, which is strange because I, I don't know if France has, even has the concept of weekends. I don't know whenever they work, but... <laughs> Anyway, unfortunately, uh, Robert does accept the invitation. However, he's having, he's carrying on an affair with Jean-Vierre. Uh, Jean Guinevere, excuse me. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Guinevere. Guinevere, yeah. <laughs> And she's asking that she leaves Christine, again, who's not true in French. And who also gets integrated to the plot is Lisette, who is Christine's assistant. She goes back to the estate to see her husband, who currently works as, who works as a staff member at this estate up in the country. However, he takes on Marceau, and she carries on a relationship with him. So again, the plot couldn't be more straightforward. I don't know how you could be <laughs> bored when all this is established in the first 20 minutes. But it was like, it's like watching an episode of Gilmore Girls. It's like wall-to-wall dialogue, and it's in French, so you have to read. And I can't read fast enough. <laughs> so it I'm does... glad you remember, you knew all the characters' names, because the only one I recognized was Andre, because he's sulking the whole time. So he's the only one who stood out to me. Okay, so you couldn't identify with his plight. Yes, it does open with this protagonist who's supposed to be this stalwart hero. 
Mm-hmm. However, like immediately when he when he's in his literally his first interview after this heroic flight, he's like, "Well, oh that damn bitch, Christine." <laughs> <laughs> I flew all the way across the Atlantic for her. Yeah, <laughs> she's not even here. <laughs> yeah. So, I I thought that was a nice inversion. Like you know this if if this is a romance, like would wouldn't you just take it on its face value as a madcap romance? I mean, could you not at least meet it halfway in that regard? <sighs> I guess maybe it was a level of expectation. Like if this is truly one of the top ten greatest movies of all time according to Sight and Sound, mm-hmm. then you'd think it'd be a little bit more than just. A romantic comedy. Well, no, and we'll get to the dramatics later. And maybe if, I don't know, it had something a little bit more to say, which I guess it kind of does, about how men and women interact, as all romantic comedies should, to a certain extent. They should at least have a thesis. Mm -hmm. And this, I guess I was lying a little bit. This movie does clearly have a point of view, and you do have to appreciate the fact that it is coming from this French place of you know, loose libertine morals where, you know, oh, they're having these affairs and, oh, I fell out of love with you. Oh, I'm married to you, but I'm playing around and I have my mistress. Mm -hmm. So I guess I have to give it some credence there, but I was just so bored. (laughs) I did not care. (laughs) And all the characters sound exactly the same. And, like, there's nothing investing me into any of it. It's so like, how am I supposed to? How am I supposed to be investing in Andre when he's a mope, <laughs> and he's dedicated too much time to a woman who's clearly not worth it? And why should I care about what this woman wants when she's just a flighty whore? <laughs> now she's not the whore. You're thinking of uh, Guinevere. No, I thought Christine was the whore. Okay. Well, yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we haven't got to that part of the plot yet, have we? <laughs> okay. Fair yeah. enough. Well, there's something I was attracted to. Again, I, I described it as Shakespearean, and the, the one thing I really grabbed onto was the film's director playing, which surprised me. I didn't know he actually was an actor as well. But Jean Renoir plays Mr. Octave. And that he's he's not really the protagonist. He's more of a Falstaff character. He's kind of comic relief and pulls a lot. But I was actually drawn in by his attempts to pull Andre out of the, out of the depths of his despair, his romantic despair. Yeah. I mean, he stands out from the rest of the cast as well. He's a big boisterous presence and mm-hmm. also you know we know kind of where his character is coming from he admits like marriage isn't for him which you know kind of makes sense because of all of his dramas going back and forth about these wives and mistresses so good on him i suppose mm-hmm. but again like like i don't care about andre's plight so why should i care about another character <laughs> caring about his plight and because why he's a good is his john it's about friendship nope. Oh yeah, his his good friend. Hey, you having trouble getting over this girl? Why don't you come to a like a uh, intimate weekend? She'll just happen to be there. Who cares? I oh, well, it's not an intimate weekend. It's a big party. <laughs> Which also confused me because at first it's like seven people, and then all of a sudden it turns into fifty. And they're like, "Hey, let's put on a play. Won't that be fun?" I, yeah, I I didn't. It doesn't explain the context. I, there are like eighteen different cuts of this movie. Um, Mm, oh. Just a, also a little backstory, John. The, the French audiences at the time also had the same viscerally negative reaction that you did. <laughs> Was it because of the loose morals? Partially because they of the loose weren't morals. respecting the sanctity of marriage. Yes. Also partially because Was this movie too ahead of its time. <laughs> perhaps also because there uh, there was still a depression on. Oh. Okay. And we're focusing on the on the goings on of a bunch of aristocrats. <laughs> who morally may not be in the best best of places. <laughs> oh, will they get those rabbits and those pheasants? I sure hope they do. Yes, eventually this turns into a, a hunting weekend. Mm-hmm. Andre and Monsieur Gustave are invited to this celebration of the culinary. It, the movie also doesn't explain that. Again, it's not the best probably expository-wise. I mean, it throws all this information at you, and yet it leaves a lot of things unexplained. <laughs> And I think that was my problem with it. It was just constant information overload. They're all talking so quickly. I mean, I have to give it some credit for being such an old film and it doesn't have like a, a languid pace to it, but it's just like, oh, they don't shut up. <laughs> they just keep going. Well, what I found... It's exhausting. Yes, but... Okay, so it it reminded me of a play. And if I can get back oh, to what I, what I actually enjoyed about the movie and what I found kind of exceptional about it was the way that characters are arranged in, in the blocking, because in the depths, at one point in the depths of Andre's despair, he's driving with Mr. Octave in the front seat, and he just drives off the road. <laughs> and Yes, great blocking there. Yeah, No, not there, because then Andre just storms off, 
and again, it's kind of just a shot, reverse shot, but the way it's kind of shot in close-up, like, it kind of drew me into the, the minds of these two characters. And then later, when Monsieur uh, Gustave goes to the Lord and and, uh, and asks for a invitation to this culinaire to get his friend out of the dumps, everything's kind of shot in the wide. Instead, you see more kind of his ornate trappings, his giant estate that's in Paris, or his giant apartment that's in Paris, and he's also like fiddling with the clock, and that that comes up later. It's a little character thing that is uh, his interest in these little mechanical musical devices. Mm-hmm. And so I there mean, were little yeah, touches I was there kind of I... weirded out by that <laughs> touch, and then they do kind of bring it full circle. Turns out he made like this giant mechanical music box thing. Yeah, to impress like, his guests, dolls and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, I was I was confused why they kept bringing that back. It's like why does he keep fiddling with like music boxes? <laughs> yeah. Mes chers amis, je vais avoir le plaisir de vous présenter ma dernière acquisition. Et elle est l'aboutissement de ma carrière de collectionneur d'instruments musicaux et mécaniques. Je crois que la chose vous plaira. Je vous laisse juste. So, I... Again, high expectations, <laughs> considering this is one of the greatest. But however, I did find there were exceptional things within the production value and within the mise en scène that I kind of grabbed there onto. Is... And it looks like, but it looks like there was a barrier between you and that. There is one great shot in the movie, and it is when they are actually performing the play. Again, they put on a show for some god knows what reason. yeah this is following a, a hunt which gives the title the rules of the game as in the hunting the game mm-hmm. and the uh camera is focused on the crowd mm-hmm. and kind of the people situated in the back of the quote-unquote theater it's a room but we get a kind of like tracking shot it's tracking between three different couples in the back of the room and it's one contiguous shot and it's like the lighting is very dramatic and the way that the camera moves is very smooth. And, you know, you get a great sense of flow and pace. And that's a really interesting shot. But for me, the rest of the movie was completely flat. It was completely boring. Flat? Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. there was nothing you going on. You like, weren't as drawn in by the blocking as I was? <laughs> <laughs> no, believe it or not, I was not impressed by the blocking. Okay. I mean, this isn't like Citizen Kane. There wasn't, like, playing with depth of field. Uh, Again, no. you're right, well, this is a play, so they filmed it like it was a play. I'm glad you actually mentioned it, because that play did remind me of a scene in Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, in, in Citizen Kane, uh, our main character, Charlie Kane, has uh, just taken over the Inquirer, and the business starts, it's on its last legs, and he, and he builds up this newspaper into the biggest circulation in all of New York City, and they throw him a big celebration. And this, ha- this mm-hmm. is about the midpoint of the film. Um, mm-hmm. Same as where this play is in the rules of the game, and mm-hmm. it it became kind of, it became kind of a a madcap when pre in th- that scene prior, like we begin to see all the romantic entanglements and and you know kind of the the facade of these characters' relationships kind of falling apart, and so like yeah, it was a, I I thought it was an interesting kind of tonal shift there. Um, actually, that's one that's one aspect of the film I didn't see because everybody gets dr- at this point everybody gets drunk. <laughs> And their behavior <laughs> resembles, uh, and they even less follow the the uh, conventions of human behavior. <laughs> I I just I don't know what to say. Like I just I wasn't invested. I just didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, fr- from here the machinations I, I'm sure attempt to give the character some pathos. So, following the play, when people have started to sober up, somebody pulls out a gun <laughs> and starts shooting, and that kind of breaks up the party. Thankfully, nobody's hurt yet. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> At least not physically. <laughs> but Monsieur, Monsieur Octave and uh, Christine kind of abscond. They they take a walk out into the garden. And, uh, yeah, this at this point, they're trying to inject some pathos. Like, you know, they're, they're feeling perpetually lonely, or they can't connect with anybody. Uh, again, could that be because of Christine's status as an Austrian instead of a Parisian? You know, could that be Mr. Octave, who's just this party animal and can't really connect with anybody? So they get, they have this connection with each other. However, like you said, I think it's undercut by two other characters who go down in the dumps at this point. <laughs> One of them is a character we didn't mention. He's a, he's a lower-class character named Marceau, um, but through his hunting prowess, he's actually brought on as a staff member at this estate. 
yes. Lord Robert takes, you know, kind of pity on him, you know. And he carries on with the wife of another staff member. Yes, and um, mm-hmm. that's what causes the row that pulls out the gun and <laughs> almost gets people yep. shot, and so they both get fired. <laughs> yes. He had one day of employment. Good yeah. for him. <laughs> well, he was bummed. I mean, you know, this was his chance to get out of the doldrums of, of the French countryside. Have you ever been to the French countryside? <laughs> I'd rather go to Beirut. They make it look so fabulous. I j- <laughs> just hunt pheasants and rabbits all day. No, that's the estate, you know. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. That's like, uh, oh, French. <laughs> France is not just the Versailles. Well, again, it's like you have these upper-class characters and you have these lower-class characters and never the twain shall meet and never shall we mention anything about it. Well, no, you're right. It doesn't, it's in terms of, if we're talking about like heritage dramas and upstairs, downstairs sort of drama, um, mm-hmm. it never rings, it never rings anything out of that. You're right about that. But I, I, I don't know. I still found things to appreciate in the characters, particularly Monsieur Octave and Christine and a few things about Andre as well. Well, I mean, yeah, at the beginning, I was kind of, uh, at least in that initial scene, like, he's flown across the entire ocean yeah. to see this woman and he's been rejected. So it comes from an initial point where you can maybe get invested in this character. But again, he's just such a mope throughout the whole movie. And again, for a woman who obviously I didn't see the point of like, like why he's so invested in her. Clearly she's very flighty and clearly she's kind of like not interested in him to begin with. And then you have all these other machinations. It's like, maybe if it was just invested in their relationship, Instead of doing this whole, like, farcical, like, oh, these two pair off, oh, and then these two pair off, and then turns into this whole Twelfth Night mess, then maybe I would, well, like, Well, it's not quite Twelfth Night, it's uh, nobody cross-dresses, thankfully. Oh, yes, okay, fine. Uh, a Midsummer's Night Dream, I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Taming the Shrew or something, yeah. But I don't know, I just... I, <laughs> but, uh, well, okay, you're right, you're right about that, I mean, and it definitely doesn't help when the end, when it kind of... Because again, playing out like a play, it has to end tragically at some point. <laughs> and I was waiting for that. Which is, I was perfectly, for that which is perfectly normal for nothing that's been a row row comedy this whole time. It hasn't been a row row comedy this whole time. Again, you see the pathos of Andre and Christine, and even see, even no. even Guinevere. You know, no, the tone is too happy throughout the movie, and so then when it does get to this kind of final confrontation, to all of a sudden flip a switch and be like, "Oh, how sad!" I like <laughs> no, it doesn't work. <laughs> Okay, well, you're right about that because yes, we have two characters who are who are down in the dumps, and through some contrivance, Monsieur Octave and Christine step out of the mansion and into a greenhouse, and they kind of connect, and they realize, and they realize, oh, it's you, Mister Gustave, or you, Mister Octave, who I love. <laughs> now, at this point, because it's late and and cold, she's actually wearing uh, the coat of the wife. <laughs> of the guy who just got fired. So he sees the coat and thinks, oh, that's my wife now running off with another guy. It doesn't matter that this woman is clearly a foot taller than my wife is. So that must be her. And through some other contrivance, Monsieur Octave has to run back into the mansion, and that gives Andre the opening to, oh, I can. this is my final chance to court Christine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run outside. Mm-hmm. And so Andre runs outside. The jilted husband thinks, oh, that must be uh, my wife's new lover, the man I now hate. It doesn't matter that he suddenly lost 100 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they didn't have optometrists back then. Okay. I just know. Everybody could have had, I don't know, 20, 100 vision at, at this point in France. <laughs> have you ever drunk in French water? <laughs> <laughs> Through a case of mistaken identity, he shoots and kills uh, Andre. Yes. And it, it ends with some of a whimper. It's like, uh, well, uh, Lord Robert like kind of throws his hands up. Like, well, there's nothing we can do. It was an accident, you know? And I think... <laughs> really brings the whole story full circle. We start <laughs> off with this Andre character. Oh, he's he's lost the girl he loves. How do we bring it full circle? He dies at the end. He dies with an accident. Technically for the girl he loves. <laughs> yes. Great. Because wow. he should have just, just moved on at that point, shouldn't he have? <laughs> If only he had moved on. Yeah. <laughs> That's the ultimate lesson. Guys, move on. <laughs> move on. <laughs> Imagine point. a 500 I days think of I, summer. I think, that's and... a I think that's a message everyone can connect with. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if 500 days of summer ended with Justin Gordon-Levitt getting shot. <laughs> I, I don't know. It sounds like an, Just impro- like sounds like an improvement to me over the current ending. Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Harsh. I know. Mark Webb is a fine filmmaker. Auto, okay. give me a break. Anyway. <laughs> so I think what you're also reacting to is kind of the ambivalence in this situation. 
a man has literally died, a, a, a revered man has literally died, and we just kind of like you know brush it off. Yeah, it's like whoop 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 do 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 do. It's I like just, <laughs> no, it does not end on a cheerful note. <laughs> no, but it's like again, someone has died, and it's like whoop. Oh well, <laughs> he was depressed anyway, so better off next time. Hopefully, our next friend won't die. Yeah, maybe it's since he was such a national hero. Maybe it, it's saying something about kind of losing the identity. I mean, it's a brave, stalwart man, which is not a word you associate with the French these days. But <laughs> wait, what? No, I I've, I want to know what the connection you're making. Okay. Is that because his death is like a larger comment on French society? Uh, maybe. I mean, the whole Are film. You kidding scene. me? I'm. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I, I'll just say this: I actually enjoyed the little madcap adventures <laughs> and the filmmaking behind it. Jean Renoir. Have you ever seen a Jean Renoir film before this? No, I have not. See, and so the, John, this is an important stepping stone on becoming a film snob. Oh, okay. Yeah. So come on, get on it. Get on the train. But Greg, see, I'm. I'm. I'm entering. I'm. We're creating a new phase of snobbery. <laughs> Are we? It's not? like we can reevaluate and you know go overrated. I say. <laughs> we're bringing it to the next level. There aren't enough contrarian voices on the internet. This is good. No, absolutely not. <laughs> you can't be critical enough on the internet. No. And you know sometimes you got to kill your darlings, and I'm killing this darling. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm. I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to keep it alive. No. No. I. I will admit. Um, in terms of where we diverge the most, in terms of uh, a critically lauding body, like sight, I think sight and sound is where we diverge the most. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> we're going to explore some other films that appear in the sight and sound top five that uh, I have bitter disagreements with. But I mean, the last French film we visited, um, Playtime. Playtime, another darling of this poll, yes. Yeah, Sight and Sound apparently loves, and we also do not enjoy terribly much. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we just have to keep exploring French cinema, and maybe we'll find those little nuggets. Absolutely, and John, I think we will. This was less of a nugget and more of a turd. <laughs> John, you're just, so, you're just so negative. I'm so, I'm so good at this. Well, to sum up, I mean... Again, I enjoyed. I actually enjoyed the Madcap Adventures, in spite of the tonal mess, in spite of the <laughs> actually uh, just painfully manipulative contrivances. <laughs> it is profoundly boring. It's not profound. Um, You're nuts. Does not obviously move cinema forward in any way. That's not true. <sighs> it advanced the career of Mr. Renoir. Oh, good for him. One of our most yes. All right. Well, then, what what what's the next step in the Renoir? Should I see? Well, like I mean, what's his like what's his what's his like perfect film that well, I should explore? Pierre Lefou. There's a there's a bunch. Okay. Yeah. Hang then on, why don't we do up. those movies? I'm gonna die. <laughs> well, because those aren't in the top five of this uh, world famous poll, are they? Aren't they? No. no okay. Fine. Again, you you seem to take umbrage with this whole poll, but you're like, let's see why. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm willing to go out there. I'm willing to go out on that limb and and say like you know and and crash and burn like. <laughs> I'm ready to bend that limb and see how far till it breaks. Exactly. Even though looking looking at it from a distance, this limb looks like nothing but twigs. But okay, let's keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm willing to take that risk, Sean. Are you? No. No matter how stupid and uncalculated it is. <laughs> no, because so far so far we're two for two. Okay. I mean, zero for two. We're yeah. zero for two so far. <laughs> Batting a thousand. J'ai beaucoup trop bu. Je ne sais plus ce que j'ai fait. Ah, mais tant mieux. John, there's there's one area where we always had a home run. What's that? Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. 
Why do we why do we even play this game anymore? <laughs> You're the one who led me into it. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> well, you could you could affirm like How am I supposed to respond to that, Greg? You're, You're keeping say, me verbally yes, hostage here. And here we are in IKEA. <laughs> and oh my gosh, is that Robert De Niro? <laughs> Buying furniture? <laughs> Buying meatballs? <laughs> and look out, he's got a gun. <laughs> improv is so speaking of improv. Oh boy, John, you saw, saw you saw a gem this weekend, didn't you? I saw a recent release. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of seeing Thor: colon, Ragnarok. Isn't it just Thor: Ragnarok? I don't I don't remember seeing a colon in the cool eighties font. There is a colon. It's uh, the eighties all the, over again. <laughs> it's the eighties. Greg, there is a colon. Okay. Okay. You can't just have you can't just have Ragnarok hanging there. Come on. Okay. Fine. That would look ridiculous. John, what does Ragnarok mean? Ragnarok is Twilight of the Gods, and in North mythology, it is the Apocalypse. Okay. Is it the, is it the Apocalypse? Is this, is this the, the apothesis of this series, finally? <laughs> this yes. most forgettable, yeah, this most forgettable of Marvel uh, sub, subsections. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of the interesting, th- uh, interesting thing about this movie. I don't think anyone's ever referred to the Thor movies as home runs. They're oh, no. Very no, they're... they're Base hits at best. <laughs> yes, they're very pretentious, or pro- they're very pretentious and very self-serious. Mm-hmm. And at least the first so, two were. Well, no, actually, yeah. I mean, no, they're light-hearted. They're just uh, somewhat empty, like vapor. Mm-hmm. Like they don't have a big thematic resonance. They don't really, you know, push any boundaries. They're just like kind of fun movies, I suppose. Not even that fun, though. Sure, they, they were. were. I mean, the first one was fine, like, that... like fish out of water stuff, but we've seen that before. Yeah, but they're trying to go for like this kind of high fantasy Lord of the Rings esque. You think so? I mean, so? maybe even going so far as like Game of Thrones esque palace intrigue. Yeah, I, I barely. I think. I think they make a, <laughs> the not second one a little bit. In that direction, but no, they, the second not. one maybe a little bit. If, although I haven't seen the uh, second one, I think that's the only Marvel movie I haven't seen. And uh, this movie is counting on you having not seen it either, because it <laughs> recaps it for you quite funnily. Nice. <laughs> So, because the like clearly the Thor movies aren't working very well, they decided to hand it off to a director, uh, Take Wakiki, mm-hmm. who has a more kind of vision, a very funny, has a more kind of yes, has a more kind of comic sensibility, and uh, I think it uh, he succeeds quite well. Okay, uh, this movie has a much more idiosyncratic style. Obviously, a good portion of it takes place on Asgard, but. It kind of rushes through that to get to the main crux of the story, which is Thor ends up on this planet called Sakaar, which is like this intergalactic trash heap ruled over by a evil alien despot played brilliantly by Jeff Goldblum. Well, John, that goes without saying. <laughs> Everything Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum plays is brilliant. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really funny. Okay. <laughs> and it, well, John is—we're uh, kind of grading on a scale here. <laughs> funny I mean, for like, uh, like funny is in Guardians of the Galaxy. Funny, like, oh, isn't it funny? Isn't it? <laughs> isn't it this wacky? <laughs> the way these characters are behaving, or is it funny in the way that uh, ta- uh, Wakiki's other films, like Hunt for the Wilder People, or uh, What We Do in the Shadows, are? It definitely has more of that kind of improvisational tone. And definitely has this kind of dry wit about it. What I, like, in terms of humor, I think it achieves more of that balance between the kind of pretentious, self-serious, like, villain with a plan trying to destroy the world, and then kind of laying on that humor, as Marvel movies tend to do well, maybe not so much. Like, Doctor Strange, obviously, when it tries to do humor, it doesn't always work. And then you have... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, when it's trying to do humor, it's trying a little too hard, and it's going a little over the top. This one kind of finds this right balance and this right tone, I think. I think that's kind of the ultimate achievement. I'm assuming that's part of the character's uh, ego. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Thor finds himself uh, imprisoned on this planet, uh, forced into kind of gladiatorial combat, but he's, you know, got this... Uh, self-satisfied moxie that he thinks he can, you know, uh, get out of here, no problem, rule the day, save Asgard, and just kind of, like... Because <laughs> normally these, you know, Marvel movies follow a formula where a character has to kind of, like, take his, take his licks 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, Thor obviously still hasn't quite learned that yet. So he's still, in his third movie, he's still kind of an asshole. Okay. <laughs> so he's still kind of working through that. All right. And, uh, you know, you get the, you have the normal stable of casts that uh, Taike usually works with, if you've ever seen Hunt for the Wilder People or um, what, what we, we do, do in, in the Shadows. shadows. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, John, you haven't even mentioned the biggest star in this movie, truly. <laughs> Two-time Oscar winner, Kate Blanchett. Oh, she's fantastic. She plays Hela, the long-lost sister of Thor and Loki. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's returned to kind of rightfully uh, take the claim to the throne she thinks is rightfully hers of Asgard. Okay. But he said something about apocaly- apocalypse, like uh, she wants to take over Asgard and then destroy it or something like that? or. No, it's it's more complicated than that. It's kind of the the movie kind of the first act is just basically getting all the stuff set up from Thor: The Dark World and uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron out of the way, just so we can get to Sakaar and all the funny bits. Okay, she's great in the movie. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is great. Sad. I the, I guess the other problem is it's just a little overstuffed because you also have Tom Hiddleston as Loki, mm-hmm. who's always great. And then you have Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk, you know, who hasn't been in a lot of these movies uh, Bruce recently. Bruce Banner, excuse me. <laughs> oh, sorry. He's a... Well, no, he actually, he plays mostly the Hulk. Okay. That's, that's kind of the point that they make, is that he's mostly the Hulk throughout the movie. And only when he ret- reverts to Bruce Banner, he's like, for, he doesn't even realize how much time has passed. Okay. Because again, they're split, they're split egos. They're different personalities. Got it. So he actually doesn't get a lot of screen time as Mark Ruffalo, sadly. All right. Which I thought was a little disappointing. But, I mean, it adds a, you know, nice little double act for when you actually do get to see him as Bruce Banner. And he's, like, freaking out because, again, this whole time he hasn't realized he's on an alien planet. Okay. Yeah. But highly recommended. All right. All right. Thumbs up from you. That's good. I don't know. Again, it just, like, uh, looks like another villain of the week kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I am waiting for these Marvel movies to go in a different direction or, you know, they've... They've got this br- much brighter, <laughs> kind of surrealistic <laughs> color palette that uh, I don't know if I'm responding to. Mm-hmm. I guess it's better than a, than gray on gray battles in airports and cities and things like that. But I I won't lie that Kate Blanchett is definitely playing a villain of the week. But what's nice is that she kind of leans into it, well, and she just goes completely. I mean, she's going to lean into anything. Yeah, she goes completely camp and operatic with it, and that's why it kind of that's Sean. She she can't play it any other way. <laughs> Have you seen Blue Jasmine? <laughs> Greg, how dare you? Okay. She's not just tall. She's not, that's not a diss on my part. <laughs> I'm just saying, she's constantly performing, you know. <laughs> even, when she's, even when she's lost her mind and talking to herself on a park bench, you know. I, I do want to see that Manifesto movie. That looks really interesting. Oh, we have to. It's uh-huh. on our schedule. It's We're going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new classic. Yes. A new, a new with a U and an umlaut. Okay, that's mm-hmm. how extreme it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. It incorporates rap. She's gonna rap into it. <laughs> well, John, I also have a recent release for you. Okay. If by recent I mean came out a year ago, but it's on oh. Netflix now, and I think you should check it out if you have your Netflix <laughs> ID or you borrow it from somebody. <laughs> it's a movie called Christine, and no, not that Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> Oh, I know this one. This one's been on my list now for a while. Yes. This is a biopic uh, surrounding the final days of Christine Chubbuck. Oh, Mm -hmm. spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) For those that don't know, um, in 1974, uh, Christine Chubbuck infamously uh, committed suicide live on air. And so this film chronicles kind of the final days of her life. It's a fiction film. It's not a documentary. But it is very realistic and kind of... um, it kind of chronicles, again, those final days and the and the little things that pushed her to this moment in her life. Part of that uh, kind of offended me a little bit. <laughs> Why I didn't that offend you? Oh, just uh, not offend me, but kind of like uh, uh, made me feel a bit iffy. Or you know, I had some moral qualms with, like, you know, 40 years later, we're going to be playing armchair psychologists. Like, well, it was the pressures on society in the early 70s and, and, and work and, and the live television. And, like, you know, like we're, like we're suddenly armchair psychologists, you know, checking things off a list. Hmm. And because um, it is done rather, some uh, what also surprised me that the movie is somewhat conventional. Hmm. Like it kind of plays out like with these scenes, and they they kind of build towards a normal conclusion. I think with a story that's as unconventional as this, 
I mean, you really have to do play how play up how kind of um, surrealistic it was, I think. And the director, who's, who's a really talented guy, his name's Antonio Campos. He did a movie called After School. I don't know if you've heard of that movie. Um, no, I can't yeah. say I have. <laughs> well, it was actually one of the, one of the first roles of uh, Ezra Miller, a young Ezra Miller who plays a disaffected teen uh, who witnesses a, a horrible tragedy and that kind of that that kind of plays out as you would kind of expect I think or at least in a way that the kind of material demanded mm-hmm. and so um fun fact Ezra Miller would also play the uh, titular Kevin in we need to talk about Kevin oh that's right yes okay. and then Warner Brothers said uh you know that kid who plays uh, who's best at playing a weirdo <laughs> In violent, amoral situations, uh, let's cast him as the Flash. <laughs> um, excuse me, they cast him as Barry Allen, oh. aka the Flash. <laughs> How dare you, sir? Sorry. <laughs> no, he's mostly the Flash in that movie, John. What are you saying? <laughs> he doesn't know where he is in time. <laughs> Flashpoint coming 2019. Yeah, <laughs> we'll retcon the whole thing. That'd be great. Um, so one of the reasons why I was really interested in Christine is because this real life story, obviously inspired one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Network. Well, that's a point of contention, John. I think uh, Patty Shevesky was working on a screenplay about that anyway, and this just coincidentally happened. I don't know if this actually inspired Network, but... Oh, really? Yeah. Again, well, either way, many... nobody can confirm or deny what, what exactly it, it was. Time either was. way, every time I have a chance to bring up Network, I will bring up Network, Got which it. is one of the greatest movies of all time. Absolutely. <laughs> You are messing with the primordial forces of nature. <laughs> that John, that wasn't that wasn't P- uh, Peter Beale or whatever his name was. No, but that's the thing. Everyone's like, "Oh, I'm mad as hell." Boring. That's the basic line. Okay. Yes, you get. If you that's get your the favorite line from the movie, John, take you... your pumpkin spice latte elsewhere, good sir. That's yeah. basic. All right. There's lots of great lines in that movie. Yeah. There are some choice lines in the. Uh, not really. I mean, this isn't as histrionic as Network is. <laughs> we hit the motherload. <laughs> yeah. The only the only uh, drama that even reaches that point is when she uh, has an argument with her mother when she meets her mother's boyfriend for the first time. Awkward. Yeah. Um, and speaking of awkward, like those things are kind of so like late in the game. Mm-hmm. And so like yeah, you don't uh, the it really does play a curveball with her suicide. Like you don't see it coming. Like it's not it's not like I will a point in the film's favor is that uh it won't. You know, you don't see it coming in that way in spite of, like, how we're checking off, like, okay, oh, this it's is not what like... contributed to her psychological condition, but we're not, like, you know, oh, she she's clearly contemplating suicide here. Oh, she clearly wants to stick it on television here. It's not like that's, like, the climax of the movie where it's, like, a slow ramp up, like, you see her throughout the day, and it's, like, soft string music, like, like you know, it's building up to it. It no, doesn't n- do that. No, it's, instead it seems, like, more, like, affirmative, because it's really more about her career and her ambition. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, it's like Nightcrawler, a, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good point of comparison too. Okay. But what really kind of brings it together is a tremendous performance by Rebecca Hall, an actress that I just greatly admire. And uh, Rebecca, I know you're listening. Um, <laughs> let me just say our first encounter. I listen. I know I shouldn't have done. I sh- shouldn't have done that. Okay, to accost you at the restaurant on Melrose. I again, my bad. <laughs> I know you're married, but you know we can work out work out these things together, okay? And have you ever seen this movie called Rules of the Game? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, listen, I was just inspired by the the French. You know, they're so they're so classy. They they've got this aristocratic lifestyle. It's just beautiful. And listen, back then they also didn't have restraining orders. So if you could see it in your heart to kind of you know just <laughs> let that go, I'm sure we can work this out, okay? I, again, just I hugely admire. I flew my plane three thousand miles to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. I went to pilot school for you. <laughs> Harrison sure. Ford keeps crashing his plane. I exactly, yeah. And I, I honestly, it was an expensive flight too. And now I'm out of cash, so you, know, you can take that sweet, sweet Christine money. Maybe. <laughs> oh yeah, that's this movie we've made Buffo box office. Uh, yes, I, I see the figures here. Uh, Three hundred thirteen thousand at the U.S. box office. Nice, so, huge hit. <laughs> We're in the money. Yeah. We're in the money. I was gonna say she could also take that transcendence uh, money, but that that didn't do so well either. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Wasn't that like produced by Christopher Nolan? So it might have been. He might have had like a like a 
associate or like crap producer title or something like that. <laughs> it was the directorial debut of his longtime cinematographer, Wally Pfister. Oh, okay. Yeah, who had just came up an Oscar for uh, Inception. Oh, okay. And sadly, they haven't really worked on a movie since. Well, I mean, after Transcendence, who would work with him? I <laughs> Maybe he's trying to do his own things, you know. But anyway, I, again, I adore Rebecca Hall in all, in all her performances, whether it be Vicky Cristina Barcelona or even The Town, where it's more of a supporting role. Or Transcend- I even saw things that, you know, she even quits herself in Transcendence. So, <laughs> You've seen Transcendence? Listen, you have those lazy afternoons with HBO on. What else? Oh, I'm do? sorry. Okay, so I can't take the time to see Power Rangers or Assassin's Creed, but somehow <laughs> you can take the time to go see Transcendence. Again, it has Christopher Nolan's name on it, John. How can I not see it? <laughs> and Rebecca Hall is a star. Come on. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Good sir. <laughs> Hypocrite, thy name is Greg. <laughs> But it, again, it's a, that's what kind of draws you in, in spite of those little demerits about, you know, how conventionally the film plays out or how much maybe the story doesn't quite come together or explain this this enigmatic life that Christine Chubbuck had. But again, you're just kind of drawn to her and just her screen presence. So that's that's really the reason to see it. And again, sadly, it didn't get any Oscar attention last year, and therefore it's consigned to the back room of Netflix, but definitely worth seeking out. Well, there was also that other weird art movie that kind of came out at the same time about the same woman. Yeah, that was a documentary. It's called, like, Kate Plays Christine, I think. Yeah, exactly. And it's about um, And that an was a little more critically divisive, um, just for, I yeah. think, being a little self-indulgent. And... <laughs> I mean, Rebecca Hall obviously has more of a... Uh more of a appearance to Christina than whoever the Kate actress was. I can't even remember her full yeah. name, but she was some House of Cards actress. Okay. Well, she doesn't have to worry yes. about that show anymore, so. Yeah, now she's kind of need a new job. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of Netflix, I guess good on you guys for... <laughs> Speaking of awkward transitions, yeah. social media. <laughs> do you have a recommendation for us? I sure hope you do, or yeah. else it's just going to be movies like The Rules of the Game all week. So please, please <laughs> send us some recommendations. And you'll also hear about all our latest episodes on Twitter, and uh, I think that's it, right? And Facebook. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I didn't see anything about our last episode, but yeah, whatever. You know <laughs> what? You know what? Sometimes you know I how people can guarantee they find our episodes every week is by subscribing. By subscribing! That's yes. how people find us, all right? Yes. On platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Player FM, mm-hmm. everywhere. We just joined Acast. That's a new uh, that's platform. A new, that's a new one to me. Yeah, that's a new one. <laughs> new to Greg just now. Yes. <laughs> listen, they need your support, so why don't you give them a listen on there? John, what are we looking at next week? Next week, in honor of the release of the biggest movie of the year, mm-hmm. Justice League, we are going to be revisiting Tim Burton's Batman. Greg, aren't you excited for Justice League? Sure. I mean, we haven't seen enough space bugs in movies, really. They're not space bugs. They're parademons. Okay. Mm, okay. Sure. They're dark side's evil minions from Apocalypse. Okay. But it's not dark side. Isn't the villain? No, it's his general Steppenwolf. Who the hell is Steppenwolf? I have no idea. Shut up. Even okay. I don't like. I know this shit, and I don't even. I don't even know who Steppenwolf is. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't in Superman the animated series, I have no idea. Yeah. Exactly. That's uh, all I hope is that they fit in Granny Goodness. That's all I want to see. I want. Uh, adaptation of The Late Mr. Kent. That would be a really good, interesting movie. Yes, it would be a great movie. Mm-hmm. See, that's I that's mean, what I want new. Again, we're getting the same shit from Marvel. <laughs> pardon my, pardon my Francais. <laughs> we're getting the Stop same villain of the week stuff. We need to, we need to tread new ground, and, and it's a, a, a murder mystery, little film noir touches. <laughs> yeah, because that's what puts butts in seats. <laughs> you know what these superhero movies need? Uh, John, more people, people are. Butts are going to be in seats regardless. <laughs> Not for Superman. Not for <laughs> Superman. Well, yeah, they were. <laughs> Man of Steel made money, so... Barely. They were They were hoping for billions. <laughs> well, because they did the same crap that they've always done. It was just louder and it was just noisier <laughs> and uh, more headache-inducing. Like, I didn't really mind Man of Steel that much. Okay. Well, or at least, I, I mean, compared to... one, I see, yeah. Uh, comparatively speaking to 
Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. It's a masterpiece. So, <laughs> so look forward to us talking about that next week. Yes, we look forward to your thoughts on Justice League in a week because obviously you're a, you're a DC super fan. And I am. <laughs> there is a huge Marvel bias within the critics' yeah, community. A huge Marvel bias. And, uh, and Suicide Squad is an underrated masterpiece. <laughs> it really is so much to say about it our does. current culture. That's about diversity. <laughs> About friendship mm-hmm. and abusive relationships. Yeah, John, what would you do to improve Suicide Squad? Like, what could you do <sighs> to fix it? If we're gonna, if we're gonna litigate uh, movies that are over a year old now that everyone's already forgotten mm. about. See, here's the here's the reason why Suicide Squad kind of works where Batman v Superman doesn't. Mm-hmm. Is that it has this anarchic streak? So any misstep it makes, it's like you can make the uh, argument like, oh, that was intentional. It's intentionally trying to be bad. John, I wasn't, I wasn't, I said litigate, but I didn't want to face this like an attorney. Like, <laughs> like oh no, I can plead insanity now. <laughs> of course you can plead insanity. I it know, has the it Joker says in damage, it. I tattooed damaged on my forehead, so. <laughs> I think Suicide Squad maybe would have helped if they had an idea of who the actual characters were. Because they're supposed to be colorful and fun, but they don't yeah. really take any time to define them. No. Well, other than by conventional means, like, oh, he's got a daughter he wants to see again. <laughs> so here's a little montage of their backstory. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, here's our here's our red shirt. <laughs> Sadly played by Adam Beach, is a really good actor. <laughs> it's a shame. Yep. And Slipknot had so much potential. <laughs> sure he did. Everybody's he had favorite. the best power set. He could climb walls real fast. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's everyone's favorite, Boomerang. <laughs> Uh, excuse me, Captain Boomerang, good sir. Uh, excuse me, yes, you're right. <laughs> it's the dark and gritty version of Captain Boomerang. Yeah, yeah he's a captain in the Australian army, mate. <laughs> he's hard drinking. They barely, they barely finish their drinks. They have half a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Some ruffians they are. I know. Some ne'er-dwells, they barely even drink. <laughs> I'll tell you, it should have been rated R like Deadpool. <laughs> Deadpool what? made a lot of money, so every movie should be like Deadpool. <laughs> <laughs> what a missed opportunity. Yes. All movies should be like Deadpool. Mm-hmm. But John, let's not miss the opportunity to end <laughs> and send folks out on a high note, huh? Uh, well, uh, yeah, go see Deadpool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. And go see Rules of the Game. Solid, solid movie. You were, you were, you were provably wrong. I know. Uh, so anyway, thank you everybody for listening. Yeah. And until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs> <laughs>